Today we're going to continue our time in 1 Peter, and we're going to be, and you may be saying, well, this is Easter, shouldn't we have a special service? Well, I have a couple of things to say about that. Yes, we are having a special service. We've been blessed by lots of music today, but uh, in the text that we have, that God has for us this morning, uh, Peter constantly keeps going back to the resurrection and the cross, and so it's no mistake that today he will do the same. Today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. And as you are finding your place there, I want us to consider this, this fact. Fear is a powerful motivator. Fear is a powerful motivator. Thinking through your life, I'm sure you could come up with some examples, but just a, a cursory glance at history throughout Scripture would reveal um, how fear has controlled people. Um, Abraham, the father of faith, right? He, uh, he was so afraid he tried to pass his wife off as his sister, not once, but twice. Um, we, ha- we have Jacob, his son, following after his father's wonderful example, who is in fear of deceiving his family, runs away from his family for fear of his life. We have uh, Lot, who offers his daughters to the city because he fears that God's messengers can't care for him. We have uh, the people of Israel, denying to enter the promised land because they were afraid of giants. Throughout history, uh, throughout the biblical history, fear often motivates us to do things. It even motivates children in here. How many of them, if they think something is scary in their room, will go to sleep? No, it's going to motivate them to stay awake, right? They're, they're going to be, that fear uh, of, of, what, of the unknown is going to cause them to, to be unable to, to sleep. It's going to, it's going to motivate them to stay awake. Today, many of us in here are probably being motivated by fear in our lives. We're motivated by all kinds of fears. Fears of what other people might think of us. Fears of what might happen with our jobs. Fears of what might happen with our families. We're, we're motivated by all kinds of fears, and we do all kinds of things in response to that. And today's passage is going to call us to another kind of fear, a fear which casts out all other fears, and that is the fear of God. In our passage today, we're going to see how, how God, the fear of God is what helps nourish us to, and motivates us to live a godly life. So a life, this is the main idea for today, a life of holy fear is nourished by grace revealed in God's character, redemption's cost, and life's champion. A life of holy fear is nourished by grace revealed in God's character, redemption's cost, and life's champion. With that in mind, I ask that you, you focus your attention on God's word this morning as it is authoritative for us. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. And if you call on him as judge, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." It's God's word for us this morning. As you begin looking at this passage, I want us to focus in on, at first, the main, the main clause of this sentence. Now, for those of you who 
who, who may not be nerds, it, it's hard to kind of see this in the in English here, but in the Greek, this is just one sentence. Now, uh, Peter has this way, like Paul, of running on, you know, and adding things to it. And the main point of this sentence comes in, in verse 17b, if you will, the second part of 17. It says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. Now, as we've been looking at in the, in the passages previous to this, the way they conduct themselves is pretty important. And, and, and conduct here is this, this manner of life. Peter here is not adding another requirement. You know, for many believers, who, especially if you've grown up in and around religion and religious traditions, you feel like there's a heap upon heap of commandments in which you shouldn't do this, you should do this. And, and, and there's this, this legalism. This is not a heaping on of a commandment. He's describing for us a manner of life, the way in which we, com- we accomplish all the commandments. And he's telling them to conduct their whole life in this particular way. He's telling them to live this way. Each of us has a way that we conduct our lives. Some of you, um, uh, God bless you, are, are like me in this, and that you have a routine for everything you do. And, and, and that's great. We, we have a, a way we conduct our lives. For some of us, maybe it's, a, um, it's the mere fact of just being free and not having a, a schedule or a routine. Or, and that's the way you conduct your life. We all have a, a way we, we conduct in our life and the way we go about it. And here he's calling us to conduct our life in a, in a very particular way, and that's in fear. Now, welcome to church. It's Easter, right? And, and, and I'm talking about fear. And, and for many people, that can mean a lot of things. And, and the Christian tradition that, that um, I came to know Christ in, the, the way that f- the fear of the Lord worked is it was, it was fear of eternal judgment. And it was hell, fire, and brimstone. And there was this, this constant terror uh, of, being, of, being, uh, of being persecuted and of being judged by God. And so there's this... this uh, just absolute terror of you should live every moment of your life in, in this in this fear, and I don't believe that's what he's saying here. He's not talking about this this dread because that doesn't fit the theme. He, remember, he's talking to suffering people, people like you and I who are struggling with everyday life, who are struggling with knowing how to work in a world that doesn't understand them, and, and that kind of fear doesn't fit with that. An alternative that many other people try to bring out here is this idea of of mere reverence. Now, reverence at one time may have communicated this fear, but for most of us today, reverence is the quiet you have when you walk in a funeral home. That's not what he's talking about here. Reverence is not mere respect for the situation that you're in. He's talking about something much more explicit. Both seem to fall short of this prominent theme. And so I think the best way to illustrate it, this is not my illustration, but a pastor uh, that, that I, I look up to shared the story once. He says, uh, once they visited a friend's house, and this friend had a big dog, like all dogs should be. It was a, you know, a big dog, okay? Um, and, and, and as they came up to the house, they, the dog was as big as their, their, their child, and it began to bark and growl. 
And the parents said, it'll be okay, just, it's on a chain, you know, it's all right. And they walk in the house, and the longer they were there, that dog just sat down and rolled over and just let them pet and love all over it and, and let the, the, the kid beat and everything else on it, and it, it wasn't worried by it. And as they got up to leave, the owner warned them, said, now don't run. Don't run. When you leave, just, just walk and don't run. And as they got up to leave, the, the child and, and Joy began to run, and the dog began to run after the child, and the child began to run faster, and, and the dog began to run faster and bark louder, and, 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 and it came to the parent, and she told you not to run. That illustrates well the fear of God. When we come to God, we understand, as the author of this, uh, of this story remarks, you don't, you don't fear to draw near. You don't fear to draw near to God because he, he begs of us to come near to him, to find rescue, to find friendship in his arms. But we must keep the fear of the dog in our eyes. We must keep the fear of God in our eyes, lest we try to run away. That's the fear of God for us. We don't fear to draw near but we, keep the, we remember the fact that, that God is the judge of all things. That there will be justice. That God is a God of, of justice. And we don't fear to draw near, but we fear to run away. That we, that we might be found to run away into the destruction of sin. And this is what he's telling them. This is the kind of fear that should, that should govern their lives. The kind that says, I want to stay near to God even when my circumstances are difficult. Notice what, what this is. He's saying, during your time of exile. During your time of exile. This idea, this idea of exile is this, during your time as outsiders, because you don't belong to the world that you're in. Now, for most of you, if you don't feel like you belong, what do you want to do? You want to run away, right? That's what everybody wants to do. We don't, we don't want to stay in the uncomfortable place you know, when you're, when you're in an uncomfortable situation, maybe some of you are uncomfortable in here, and you just, just get church over with and get out of here. You want to run away. He's saying don't run away, but just draw near to God in those moments. It's a temptation for us as outsiders in this world to run away from God and find security in everything else, money and jobs and relationships, to find security in everything but God. God is not calling us to run away in our lives, but to run to Him. What are you running from? What are you running to this morning? What, this natural fear in mankind impacts us in the heat of trials. If I were to come up to you today and say that tomorrow you're going to die, for many of us that would, mean, that would have a sense of terror. For many of us, that, there would be a sense of dread in that. And, and in thinking through that, how would we live? And we could go throughout our last day, our last 24 hours of living, and we could, we could, we could live for ourselves and everything that we do. And he's saying, live during this time, the short time that you have, this time that you're strangers, that you know that this is not all. Live during this time in such a way that you might bring glory and honor to me. But that kind of fear doesn't come natural to us. That kind of fear is not something that you and I naturally have. Why? Because God is, seems out here. And so 
Peter has a, uh, has a way of, of nourishing this kind of fear in our lives, this kind of life that is lived in, in, in reverence of God and of the God and who we understand we once stood under condemnation in. As we consider that God, he, he nourishes this fear that we would live differently, that we wouldn't keep going through the motions and keep doing things until they're uncomfortable, but we would live differently. And he nourishes that in three ways. First, it's nourished by God's character. In, in, verse, in the beginning of verse 17, it says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each deeds. Now, many translations, if you've got your Bible in front of you, many translations uh, will translate that as since. Since you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. I don't like that. It doesn't seem to fit the text. It doesn't seem to fit his natural flow here. He means if. But this is not an opportunity for, to cause them to doubt fear or to doubt their faith in this moment. He's saying, if indeed, if indeed you do these things, then live this way. He's assuming they're going to say, of course we're going to call out to our Father in heaven. Who wouldn't call out to God? Who wouldn't want to pray to God in times of trouble? He's saying, of course you're going to say yes to this. If indeed you are going to call out to him as Father, then you also ought to conduct your lives in this kind of way. You should live like this. And, and what is this character that we are going to hold to if you call out to him as Father? What, what does that mean to us? And automatically, when you say call out to him as Father, there should be some red flags for believers that have been around church for very long. You should be automatically, call out to him as Father. You mean like Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer? My Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. If indeed you are going to call to God, if indeed you are going to seek God in the circumstances of life, then we ought to live in fear. Why do we call out to God in prayer? Why do you pray this morning? Why do you pray each day? Well, we pray because we believe God hears our prayers. We pray because we believe God has the power to, to transform and, and help us in our daily lives. We pray because we understand God's character. Each of us, Okay, there's several children in the room. And when they cry out, Dad, what are they wanting? You know, uh, um, I don't have any girls. I, we, we hate that. We wish we had some girls. But I do know that it's probably for the best because uh, I, would, I would not be able to be as disciplined in my disciplining of them as I am with boys. And, and so... Um, it's, it's probably for the best, but, but when that little girl looks at her father and says, Daddy, what, what are they pleading on? They're pleading on a relationship that they have with their father, right? They're pleading on something that they have. They're pleading on this, they're, they're tugging on the chains of his heart in the sense of, of, I know what kind of relationship I have to you. Some of the little girls in the room are smirking. Um, they know that trick too well. We're, we're pleading on that, right? We're pleading, we're, we're, we're pleading on that relationship that we have to the Father. The problem is, is we can't pick and choose what attributes of God we want. We can't look at the Bible and say, I like this one, not this one. 
We have to take God's word for what it is, as, as it stands before us. And what he says is, if you call on him as father, who does what? Who judges impartially according to each one's work. Who judges impartially according to each one's work. Now that's less comfortable, right? The father, of course I want to call on him as father. But the, the one who judges impartially according to each one's work, that's a little less comfortable, Judging has this meaning of distinguishing. If I have two things before me, I'm going to judge which one's better, right? I'm going to distinguish which one's better. If I, if I had two pies this, before me this morning, which I would love to have, if I had two pies before me this morning, and, and I began to examine them, I would want to see which one is better, which one has, has better flavor, which one has... Uh, crust similar to slice of pie and rala which one is which one's close to this which which i'm going to judge i'm going to see which ones they are he's he's distinguishing something what is what is god distinguishing well he's distinguishing in a particular way he's distinguishing impartially literally the word for for impartially here has the idea of without receiving face it's only used here in the new testament and it has this idea of without receiving face that means I'm going to judge without, without the looks. I'm going to judge this based not on outward appearances. How many of you remember the story of David? When, Saul called, or when Samuel is going to anoint the next king. And, and he, goes, he goes to the house and they start bringing out the sons. Nope, not you, not you, not you, not you. He gets through, is this all you have? Well, I've got one more. He's a runt out in the field with the sheep. And what does God tell him? I judge not on outward appearances. This is God. He's not judging on what we look like when we come to church on Sunday morning. He's not judging on what we look like when we're out in the streets and everybody can see us. He's judging based on our hearts. He's judging impartially according to each one's work or some... Some translations may say deeds. It's not actually a plural noun there. It's work singular in which it means the whole of your life. What does your life sum up to? If you could say, this is the work of my life. Here it is. And you could hold it out for me. God is judging that moment. And in that moment, he's seeing past what it looks like to the heart of the individual. He's, seeing, he's judging our hearts. And if we call on him as father who who judges who sees past everything outside of us and looks into our hearts that is what we must examine the people of israel were were judged and isaiah declares this judgment to them in isaiah 29 13 through 15 he says and the lord said because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are from, far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men uh, shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning shall be hidden. Ah! That's always interesting when you read those in scriptures, like, aha! Um, ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? 
God, through Isaiah, is declaring God's going to see past those moments, and he's going to see into those, those dark places when you think no one's around. And he's going to recognize that the things that you're saying on your lips are mere lip service. They have no, no meat. They have no, no heart behind them. He's judging past those things. He's seeing past those, those moments when we say, yeah, I fear God. But when we're alone, we act as though he's not there. He's seeing past those moments in our lives. You could have the most beautiful work of ministry. Any of you out here, uh, who, you, could, you could have worked for year upon year upon year, proclaiming God's majesty to people that are, uh, that are the worst of heathens in the worst of places and given up everything. But it is mere rubbish unless it's done for the sake of God. Whatever it is that we're doing today, if, whatever it is, if, you've, if you come to church and you're like, I put on my best and I, and I gave my tithe, and I, if, it, if all of that is devoid of what you do for God's sake, God sees past the mask. Your fear of God is nourished as you contemplate God's character. Is your view of God informed by the word of God? Or is it just mere tradition? Is your view of God formed by the things that you read in this book? Or are they just the things that, well, I've always been taught that. The fear of God that, that honors God is, is nourished by this understanding of God. Peter begins with their concept of God calling on them to think deeply about the one to whom they call Father. And he calls them to discern their own lives. To ensure that they indeed believe these things if they are going to call on him and live a life that reflects that in fear of God. So he calls them to nourish their fear by considering God's character. Secondly, he calls them to nourish their fear by considering redemption's cost. In verse 18 and 19 it says, Knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. When you think about this, he says, knowing these things. Knowing these things. How many of you have every Easter heard that Jesus came, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross for your sins. Show of hands. How many of you have heard that before? Most of us in this room have heard that before. He says, knowing this. Does he mean, well, just because I've heard it before? No, here he has this idea of, this is not mere intellectual acumen of, of I, I gr grasp all of these things and I can tell you all the scriptures. Rather, this is an intimacy. Knowing this, being familiar with this cherished truth of the Christian life. Those who felt like strangers in this world, they would have felt comfort by knowing that Christ died for their sins despite the fact that they felt like they were out of place. Knowing this. Knowing what? Knowing that they were ransomed. Now, that's not a word we use every day, is it? You, you all talk about being ransomed often. No, we, we don't, we don't say that word 
very often. So I'm going to give you a, a short definition, and then I'm going to ask you to repeat it after me. Ransom, this is what it means. Uh, or it is deliverance by payment. Deliverance by payment. So say it after me. Ransomed, delivered by payment. See, I knew you all were falling asleep already. It says deliverance by payment. Now, that may seem kind of strange when we consider Christ. What, what is it that we have been delivered from? Well, he says here that we've been delivered or ransomed from our futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Futile ways inherited from our forefathers. I can tell you there's probably some pretty silly things that I say just because my father always said it, right? I mean, we, we, all of you have done that, right? All of you have said, I'm never going to do that with my children. And then they mess up and they say, well, why? And you say, because I told you so, right? Because that's what you were told. No one really knows, you know, the, the meaning of that. It's just the thing that kind of comes out in that moment. We, we, we do things out of habit, Christ, or God, God, through Christ, ransomed us from our futile ways. He's not talking about silly sayings that we say. He's talking about these empty ways of living. Whether it is your empty, vain religious practices, or it is a life that is completely devoid of Christ, whichever it is, God in Christ ransomed us from that. Now, as we read this letter and we see these things, many people would want to say, well, he's just talking to those who were blatant sinners, who just lived lives completely devoid of Christ. But I don't know that we can say that. He, he references Jewish literature so much throughout here. I think he was also speaking to those Jews and hypocrites who, who honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. I mean, who did the best of religious practices, who, who were always in church. I mean, they tithed on their spices. I mean, that's, that's, we would want to nominate them to head of, uh, chairman of deacons, wouldn't we? I mean, they, they, I mean they're, they're, they're up there. But they had no, no, no relationship to Christ. The things that they did, they knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and yet Christ said, and do you not know me? We could do all of these things. You can know all of the Christian traditions. You can know all the right things to say. And yet Christ ransomed us from empty religious practices. Things that mean nothing. Peter's remedy for our apathy towards God was to meditate on the knowledge of redemption's cost. What did it cost us? Cost him to redeem us? Remember? Ransomed is, is deliverance by payment. If that is the case, what did it cost him? Well, he says here, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. I don't know about you, but silver and gold are, are not necessarily cheap. Right? I mean, there's a reason we like silver and gold. Part of it is because it's expensive. Right? You want nice things. He didn't ransom us with, with perishable things like silver or gold. This is a theme for Peter. This idea that the best that the world has to offer is still perishable. It's not gonna, we're not going to take it with us. It's going to pass away too. He didn't ransom us with that. 
What did he ransom us with? The precious blood of Christ that we sang about this morning. The cost for our redemption, the cost for our ransom was Christ's blood. We, we have a problem, and our problem is a value problem. We place too much values on things that mean nothing. We, we value things that mean nothing. And the things that mean the most to God, we celebrate one Sunday a year. We have a value problem as believers. Grace was not cheap. It cost the perfect Lamb of God that we sang about this morning. And for those of you, I don't have time to unpack all of that imagery, but what we see in that Lamb of God imagery, this, this idea of the Lamb of God slayed in Isaiah 53, we see in that the, the idea of the Lamb whose blood was spread over the do, doorpost at, at the final plague in Egypt. We see in that the idea of this perfect sacrifice. You and I, when we look at our lives, it's far from perfect. Amen? Christ was perfect, and yet he died as a criminal on our behalf. That is the cost to ransom us from these futile ways of living, from these empty ways of living. When we consider the cost, why would we go back? Why would we go back? Why would we, when we understand that Christ rescued me from this enslavement to sin, why would I go back to my sin that he paid so dearly to free me from? When we contemplate these things, when we contemplate the redemption's cost, it should motivate us to fear God because he paid a price. I know I keep using children illustrations, but it comes natural with Peter as he considers them children of God. But for you parents out there, when you have something expensive in your home, we don't, that doesn't typically last long in our home with three boys, but when you have something expensive in your home, the more expensive it is, what happens when it gets torn up? The angrier you get. Come on now, I'm not the only sinner in the room. <laughs> the more expensive it is, the more value it has. I mean, it's one thing if they tear up a five-cent piece of paper. Right? That, okay, it's a five-cent piece of paper. It's another thing when they punch a hole through the wall. Right? None, none, of, your, none of your kids do that, right? Okay. Um, it, it's completely different. Right? Because the value, what? Right? The value of that, of that fix. The value of that replacement. Christ, pay, God paid dearly on our behalf. We have a value problem, and we need to think deeply about these things. Are, are the futile ways of, of your past, are you still hanging on to them? Are you still hanging on to the sin that Christ paid his life to ransom you from? Are you still hanging on to a way of life that's empty? Or maybe you're just not valuing what God's given you. You, you realize that this shouldn't work, Right? All of us gathering in this room, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different things going on in life. Church shouldn't work. But yet, 
through Christ and his redemption, he's brought us together. He's ransomed us, all of us, that we might move forward in the kingdom of God, that we might advance the kingdom of God. And yet we can treat church like, eh. The gathering of God's people that he died for, eh, they're kind of annoying. While that may be true, Christ died for those annoying people. Christ died for us. We must contemplate these things if we are to develop the fear of God in our life. He gives us one other. He says that we are nourished by life's champion. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in these last times who uh, raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now this is Easter, so we all know we, we all know that we're celebrating the risen Christ, right? Not the one in the grave. The tomb is actually a better symbol of Christians. And we, and we, see, we see this empty tomb, and we understand that Christ was foreknown that this was going to... He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God knew beforehand. He knew before, as one author says, before the establishment of the material universe, before there were even human sinners to be redeemed... Christ and his eternal counsel had already chosen man's redeemer. Before we were even thought, before we were even created, God had already chosen our redeemer. This wasn't an accident. God created us knowing we were going to sin. God created us knowing he was going to send his son to die on a cross on our behalf. Before anything was created, before the foundations of the world, Christ was foreknown, but was made manifest or was made known. He was known by God beforehand, but he was made known to you and I in the here and now. Why was he made known? For the sake of you. That should just blow your mind. I mean, let me say that one more time. He was known by God before the foundations of the world, but was made known in our time for your sake. Each and every one of you, you could put your own name in there and see God was made known for your sake, that you might have hope and faith in him. That should just... If that, doesn't, if that doesn't set you on fire in your heart for loving God and wanting to, to live in obedience to Him, that He would do that for you and I, there's just something wrong with us. Who, he was made known for our sake, who through Him are believers in God. This isn't vague. We're not made believers in some vague God. It's... Um, there's this thing called therapeutic moral deism. I know that's a fun word, right? Uh, and, but that's, that's what the, the United States has been categorized as believing. The majority of the United States would, would believe something like a therapeutic moral deism. In other words, there's some God out there, and I just want him to help me. Not sure what he is, not sure who he is, not sure how he's going to help me, but he's out there somewhere. 
And as we look at this passage, he's saying, no, you were saved, you were made believers through a particular person, through Christ. If you are a believer in God today, true believers in God must come through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, is what Jesus says. He says, we are made, he was made known for our sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead. Do, do, we, re, do we realize what we're professing to believe in? Do you realize how crazy that sounds? Who raised him from the dead. Anybody here seen a dead man come to life? It just doesn't happen. We, we, we see this in the New Testament, and these people are just blown. Their minds are blown. They can't imagine this. And we worship a God who's done this and who was witnessed by thousands of individuals. He, he rose bodily on our behalf. Today is the day we celebrate the resurrection. Though we are eternally grateful for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we would not have salvation apart from it, without the resurrection, the power of God is void. Without the resurrection, if we believe in a Christianity with a crucifixion but no resurrection, we are powerless. Paul says this, If Christ... If in Christ we hope in this life, oh, sorry, hold on. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We we should nourish our fear in God because we believe in a God who conquered death. Oh, death, where is your sting? There, there, is no, there is no sting in death because Christ has conquered it. Christ is life's champion. In the Old Testament, the prophets would often mock the people for their faith in idols of wood that couldn't speak or move. We can mock them for their ignorant faith. We, we, it seems ridiculous, right? One prophet says, you take a log, you cut half of it for firewood, or you cut, sorry, a third of it for firewood, a third of it for, um, for furniture, and then a third of it you make carve out an idol and you bow down and worship it. How ridiculous does that seem? And yet we can work our whole lives to earn the money to buy that one thing that we wanted and turn around and bow down and worship it. Sinning to get it and sinning if we don't. We're no different than they are. And yet God calls us to worship something that is not dead, that has not asked us to serve Him, but has died while we were yet sinners, before we ever wanted anything to do with Him. If your life is nourished by a living Savior and you are seeking nourishment in lesser things, if your life isn't nourished by the living Savior and you're seeking nourishment in lesser things, you will always be dry. You will always be seeking more. 
But as believers, we should seek to be nourished by the fact that we have a Christ that was known before the foundations of the world, that was made manifest as he came to earth to dwell among men, that, that dwelled on earth perfectly and sinlessly, died on a cross, rose again on the third day, and ascended in heaven where he sits on the throne waiting for God to bring his enemies in his submission. That's the Savior we worship today, and that is that that should nourish our hearts to live obediently. As we consider these truths, you have a couple of options today. You can ignore everything I said, walk out this room, and live no differently. Or we can leave here today knowing these things and being transformed in the way we live. Transformed that we might live in this fear that knows the power of God and yet draws near to it above everything else. Some of you today, you recognize that you've never experienced God's grace. And you've been living a life as if you're not going to give account to God. You've been living alone. Please know that God judges impartially according to each one's work. Others of you today have been motivated. You've, you've done lots of works, but they don't mean anything. They're because you've always done it. That's, that's what we've always done. Christ has died to ransom you from empty ways of living and to cause you that when you sing, that you're singing from a heart transformed by his grace. That when you give, you're giving out of a heart that's overwhelmed with gratefulness for what Christ has done for you. That when you go out and you serve those in your neighborhood and you're lost, you're doing it because you recognize that Christ served you even when you did far from deserve it. God has died to ransom us from empty living. Some of you today are faithful. You live each moment in light of these truths, and you just need to be encouraged. Our Savior is risen. We can keep doing this. That, that's the encouragement. As we see these things, God raised him for our behalf, that we might have faith and hope in him. So do just that. Bow with me in prayer as the musicians come forward.